His city was in ruins. His people were in exile. Yet God called him to a significant construction project. How did Nehemiah manage to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in just 52 days? And why did he face so much opposition internally and externally? In just a few minutes, we'll meet a no-nonsense Nehemiah in an up-close conversation. Just who was he? We're going to travel back in time, and we invite you to do that with us on The Land and the Book. Hey, welcome. And before we hit the switch in our time travel machine, we need to do two things. One, say hello, and two, bring you up to date on the most current of current events in Israel and the entire region. So how about a big hello from the host of The Land and the Book, Old Testament scholar, frequent Israel traveler, Dr. Charlie Dyer. Hey, John, it's great being with you. It's great being with our listeners again. And uh, what an exciting week this was in Israel. Yeah, big stories out of Israel and the entire region this week, Charlie. Starting with Israel's national election. It's finally over, or is it? (laughs) What do we know about the final election results? And when will we know if someone will be able to cobble together a coalition or if Israel will need to hold, dare I say it, yet another election? You know, for those who want quick results for their elections, Israel's process of forming a government is the equivalent of scraping your fingernails across a chalkboard. Uh, The Likud party of Benjamin Netanyahu came out on top in terms of winning the largest number of seats in the Knesset. Uh, That was expected. However, they only received half the number of seats needed to form a coalition, also expected. So right now, the, the total, though it's still unofficial, Looks like his logical coalition partners, which include the ultra-Orthodox parties and even Yamina, only end up with 59 seats, too short of what they need to form a government. And Naftali Bennett's Yamina party hasn't yet said it would join that coalition with Netanyahu. So uh, those parties uh, are still short. The other parties who said they would never form a coalition with Netanyahu have a total of 56 seats. But that group comes from a wide spectrum politically, from secular progressive parties to the Arab joint list to some very secular but conservative parties like Avigdor Lieberman's Yisrael Batenu party and Gideon Sa'ar's New Hope party, uh, which split off from Netanyahu. The remaining five seats, the ones that could flip the balance either way, they belong to Ra'am. It's an Arab Islamist party that said it's willing to talk with both sides as long as they agree to include their agenda as part of the government. So here's where they are right now. Israel's president, Reuven Rivlin, will meet with the head of each party to see who they're willing to support as prime minister. The person or party who appears to have the most support will be tasked with trying to form a coalition. But the election results won't be formally presented to Rivlin until this coming Wednesday. Hmm. He won't do anything until he receives the official totals. Then he'll begin consulting with the different parties. But Those meetings will be delayed a bit because Friday night is the start of Shabbat and then Saturday night is the beginning of Passover. Uh, The president has until April 7, 10 days from now, to give a 28-day mandate to someone to try to build a coalition. We'd normally expect that to be Netanyahu since his party won the most seats, but it will be the person most likely to be able to form a coalition. Now that could take us into early May. And if that person hasn't been able to form a coalition, he can ask for and receive two more weeks. If he still can't form a coalition, then the president can choose someone else and give them four weeks Hmm. with no extension to see if they can form a coalition. This means, John, the process could drag out into late June or even July. And if no one can form a coalition, they head back to new elections. Now, Israelis hope it won't take that long. But I suspect it could be weeks until we know if a new government can be formed 
or if another election is going to be just over the horizon. Well, Israel and Iran have been secretly attacking each other's cargo ships in the Middle East. What impact are these attacks having in the region? And perhaps more importantly, could they lead to more open conflict between the two countries? Yeah, and all of this came to light when an Israeli-owned container vessel was attacked in the Arabian Gulf. Israel charged Iran with being behind the attack on the vessel, and that's probably correct. Uh, Then a report appeared in the Wall Street Journal saying Israel had targeted at least 12 vessels linked to Iran in the past two years, suggesting Iran was merely responding to earlier Israeli aggression. Well, apparently, Israel attacked those ships carrying Iranian weapons to terror groups and ships carrying Iranian oil being shipped illegally to Syria. Iran attacked an Israeli-owned commercial ship, likely as a warning to Israel that other ships could be attacked the same way. And the U.S. leaked all that information to the Wall Street Journal, probably as a public warning to both countries to stop attacking each other's ships. Now, could this lead to more open conflict? Probably not by itself. It's just one more reminder that each country continues to look for ways to harm the other. Now, if these attacks stop, it's likely something else will take their place. And as Iran moves closer to enriching enough uranium to build a nuclear weapon, Israel is hinting more publicly it could be forced into acting alone and attacking Iran to stop them. One Israeli security expert even floated the idea if the U.S. would just sell Israel one or two of our aging B-52 bombers and uh, that so-called massive ordnance penetrator or MOP bomb, the the 30,000-pound bomb we have, that could destroy Iran's nuclear facilities. Now, some see that as a signal to Washington that if we're reluctant to step in and stop Iran, all we need to do is provide the tools to Israel and they'll take on the job. The fact that all of this is even being discussed publicly is a reminder that Israel would prefer to dissuade Iran from pushing forward, but they'll do whatever is necessary to keep nuclear weapons out of Iran's hands. If you're just joining the conversation, this is The Land and the Book with noted Old Testament scholar Dr. Charlie Dyer. I'm John Geiger. We're working our way through a list of current events, all based in the Middle East. Straight ahead, by the way, in our next segment, a conversation with T.J. Betts, an up-close look at Nehemiah. Our third story, Israel's high court has temporarily halted the Jerusalem cable car project. All work has stopped at least until the end of April, but while work on the cable car has been suspended, so to speak, another company has stepped forward and is floating a plan to offer blimp rides in Jerusalem and at the Dead Sea. Charlie, will either project ever get off the ground? Yeah, you know, John, I'm not a fan of the cable car project, so I see the high court ruling as, well, at least a temporary victory for sanity. The Jerusalem municipality had pushed the mile-long cable car system as, they said, a transportation project and not a tourist attraction, but it really is a tourist attraction. That allowed them, though, to bypass a more rigorous approval process. Well, the high court has ordered officials to explain why they did this and why the route wasn't modified to avoid passing over one community cemetery, which desecrates the site and renders it unusable to that group. Hmm. So the project isn't yet dead, but this has definitely slowed it down. Now, in terms of the blimp proposal, I'm not sure what to think. An Israeli-based startup called Atlas LTA, as in lighter than air, is hoping to build at least two blimps to fly tourists over parts of Israel, with Jerusalem and the Dead Sea being mentioned as the two most likely areas. Uh, The company's CEO wants to develop an environmentally friendly airship that could hold 17 passengers in a large cabin with huge windows and an observation deck. 
he would use helium and it would be propelled by electric motors, eliminating pollution and engine noise. And he hopes to launch the service sometime in the next two years. Now, just think, John, in a few years, you might be able to go to Jerusalem and float a few thousand feet over the city. Uh, The 30-minute flight is expected to cost $200, so Mm. it'd be a rather pricey add-on for a trip. But it still would be a cool way to see the Holy Land. Oh, and think of the pictures you could shoot out the windows, Charlie. That's where my mind's going. <laughs> you know, John, I, I rented an airplane once just to get aerial shots, and uh, that wasn't the greatest uh, opportunity. But doing it from a blimp, that could really be cool. Yeah. An Israeli startup is developing artificial brainwaves to help heal stroke victims. How does this latest innovation from Amazing Israel work, Charlie? Well, the treatment has been developed by an Israeli startup company called BrainQ. That's brain and the letter Q following. Uh, The treatment involves a wearable artificial intelligence powered device that generates brainwaves through an electromagnetic field. In a double blind, randomized clinical trial of stroke patients, 77% of those who used the device recovered faster from strokes when compared to those who didn't receive the treatment. The U.S. Food and Drug Administration has already designated the device as a breakthrough device, allowing it to expedite development and provide Medicare coverage. Only 5% of stroke victims in the U.S. arrive at the hospital in time to benefit from current medical and surgical treatments. Hmm. This new device extends the window of opportunity for helping stroke victims by days or even weeks following a stroke. The company's still conducting clinical trials in several medical centers worldwide, but hopefully the device will soon become available across our country. It could help more stroke victims recover without significant disability. That's definitely an innovation from Amazing Israel that could be put to use right away in our country and around the world. Charlie, I want to circle back to the uh, political situation in Israel. All of these elections upon elections, what's going on legislatively? Are things being hampered financially? And what about just basic defense of the nation in this uh, long, drawn-out drama? They're in year two without a budget. Uh, the basic functions of government carry on, but legislation is just being held up. It's, it's definitely a mess. They need a government. And your devotional later on, where are you taking us? Ah, we're heading to Bethlehem. We're, we're doing that series on first impressions. Last week was Saul, this week it's David. And we'll look forward to that. But first, coming up, a conversation with T.J. Betts, an up-close look at Nehemiah on the land and the book. His city was in ruins. His people were in exile. Yet God called him to a significant construction project. How did Nehemiah manage to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem in just 52 days? And why did he face so much opposition internally and externally? Up next on The Land and the Book, it's an up-close look at Nehemiah. Just who was he? What made him tick? Travel back in time with us on The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger, and I can't wait to dig into this conversation. But first, let's do some creative thinking about how we can love our Jewish friends for Christ. Do's and don'ts when it comes to sharing your faith. Are there any of those that come to mind? Let's ask Beth Tavlin. She's with the Olive Tree Congregation in suburban Chicago. What are some do's and maybe some don'ts, Beth, that come to your mind? Well, do share your faith with a Jewish person. Don't be afraid. Mm I think there are, in my experience, two different kinds of Jewish people, some that are more 
biblical observant and others who don't know much about the Bible. Yes. And I think we are more ready to share with someone who doesn't know about the Bible, but those who are biblical observant also need to know about the Messiah and they don't have a personal relationship with him. And if you are able to share your relationship with the Lord, with a Jewish person, it doesn't matter what they think they know or don't know. It's about the Lord and what they are lacking. But what about my fears that maybe they may know more than I know and I'm all intimidated? Trust the Lord. He will lead you through it and it'll be okay. Great encouragement from Beth Tavlin. She's Congregational Administrator and co-leads the women's ministry at Olive Tree Congregation. Appreciate your being bold and sharing with us, Beth. Sure. Dr. T.J. Betts is Professor of Old Testament Interpretation and came to Southern Seminary in 2001. He received his baccalaureate degree from Wright State University, his MDiv and PhD from Southern Seminary. Before joining Southern's faculty, he pastored churches in Ohio and Indiana for more than 14 years, and today he preaches and teaches all over the place. He's authored Ezekiel the Priest and other books, including Amos, an ordinary man with an extraordinary message, and now Nehemiah, a pastoral and exegetical commentary. Along with other publications, he writes for Lifeway's Explore the Bible and is a regular contributor to Stand Firm and Biblical Illustrator. It's a pleasure to have you with us, Dr. Betts. Oh, I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much for the invitation. Well, let's meet Nehemiah at work in the palace of King Artaxerxes. That's where we first encounter him. Describe his unique access and influence in the life of the king. Well, it's amazing that uh, we see he was a cupbearer, which was a very important position. I mean, that was like the inside position, uh, one of the most trusted people, because especially uh, these uh, Assyrian kings, Babylonian kings, and then the Persian kings, uh, um, all of them were very concerned about uh, someone trying to assassinate them. So uh, Nehemiah had a very trusted position because he would uh, make sure the food was fine, like a food taster, and and really look out for the welfare of the king. So uh, the king really put a lot of trust in him. You point out that uh, at least four of the Persian kings had been murdered, and at least a half a dozen of them reached the throne by way of some conspiracy. So therefore, uh, Nehemiah really was a most trusted advisor. How dangerous was his position? And what were the sources of that danger for him personally? Well, yeah, very dangerous for him because uh, if the king even had any hint that uh, he couldn't trust um, Nehemiah, Nehemiah's life was in peril. And also, uh, people who would try to get at the king, well, one way of getting at him would be to replace Nehemiah, someone the king trusted, with possibly someone that uh, he couldn't trust. And so Nehemiah was in a uh, tough situation in in that sense, uh, no doubt. When King Artaxerxes gave his edict that the Israelites could return to their homeland, do we have any sense at all of, uh, you know, what percentage of those who were in exile chose to return? Probably not, but was it many? Was it most? Uh, a few? It, 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 numbers-wise, it just doesn't seem huge. Numbers-wise, I guess percentage-wise, it doesn't seem like it is huge. Uh, it seems like the majority of people stayed behind. And, uh, of course, we have the book of Esther that uh, takes place, actually. The events of Esther kind of take place in the middle of the events that take place with Nehemiah, kind of that that same time Mm -hmm. period. 
And so um, most of them did stay behind. It was really a, a huge thing for them to go back because they had been in Babylon for 70 years, and for many of them, it became their home. And it was just the picking up stakes and going back to uh, a place that we find uh, was in ruin. And so it w- w- would have been a very hard decision, practically speaking, for uh, Jews to want to go back. Still, why not more, I ask? I mean, is that really perhaps the uh, the most uh, compelling evidence that these people had sort of fallen away spiritually? I mean, that they wouldn't want to return to their homeland, wouldn't want to return to a place where the sacrificial system was honored, wouldn't want to be able to worship God in their own way, in their own land. To me, that just seems a little bit telling. It is. They really got comfortable with where they were. And we even see this kind of mindset Uh, When the people actually do return, they start to build the temple, and then they stop with that. And we have the prophet Haggai and um, Zechariah come along and have to kind of, uh, you know, put some fire under them to get them moving to do that. So uh, it was a propensity of of the people just to be comfortable. And uh, that was really what uh, set them off. Even Nehemiah um, has to really... uh, put a fire under them to get moving even there because uh, they're used to living with ruin all around them. Mm -hmm. And which is kind of spiritually telling for us today too, because I think sometimes we get comfortable with just the ruin in our own lives. And so, yeah. yeah. TJ Betts is professor of Old Testament interpretation at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, a former pastor. He's written Nehemiah, a pastoral and exegetical commentary. You mentioned this idea of being comfortable with ruin, and I'm drawn to an illustration from my own life. I traveled some years ago with a former missionary to Angola, Africa, where 30 years of protracted civil war had planted uh, more landmines than there were people, where devastation was everywhere. In fact, the town that we were at, uh, there wasn't a single pane of glass that wasn't broken. Hmm. And at first, it was absolutely stunning, shocking, almost numbing, and after a few days, I noticed I ceased to notice it. And I wonder if, spiritually speaking, that's sort of what became of the Israelites as they were in exile. Yes, I, I think that's right. And and the other thing is, uh, God had told them that he would be with them in exile. And uh, when Ezekiel has this vision of, of the, the Lord lifting up from the temple, he heads east to Babylon, and that was a promise that he would be with them. The thing is, he blessed them there, but that was never meant to be yeah. the finality for them. So I think uh, we look at a lot of them, and we look at extra-biblical evidence, and we see a lot of them did really well in exile, at least economically and mm-hmm. Uh, sad to say, um, many times that overtakes our spiritual concerns. So what motivated the king to release the people when he did? I believe it's just God's work in his life. You know, the the scriptures say that the Lord directs the, the ways of a king. And uh, I believe that it was a work of God, um, that God used Nehemiah, but also God was um, working in the, the whole situation mm-hmm. um, in that. And I don't know that I can give any explanation that's apart from a God thing, that just God did this. Well, it's one thing to let some captives go, quite another, though, to fund the rebuilding of their city's walls and temple. Why give Nehemiah money to finance this rebuilding project? Yeah. um, Now, I'm kind of a cynic when it comes to uh, the politics of that day. 
what I believe um, happened, and, and Cyrus was the one that actually gave the initial edict, and then Artaxerxes with Nehemiah, but um, they had to go back to Cyrus's edict to get everything to work for them um, in rebuilding the temple, for instance. But but I believe that um, with the Persians, the, the Assyrians put people in exile and kind of you know, separated them. But the Persians, they wanted to come across as heroes. And so what they did is they said, we've come in the name of your God. Um, you can go back. We're going to fund you, and we're going we're gonna to do all these things for you. And they sound really wonderful, but mm-hmm. their tax rate on the people was 50% plus. <laughs> and so when we look in Nehemiah's day, they're selling their children into slavery to pay the taxes of the the Persians. And so the Persians have a little different kind of way of uh, – theirs was about the money and uh, their way of uh, really keeping a people down under them was really financially. And so it comes off like we're the good guys, yeah. and, and they meant to do that, I believe. Sure. But in the end, um, I guess I sound cynical, but mm-hmm. I, from what seeing what they did – in the end, uh, they they were oppressive in their own ways. This is The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. Before joining the faculty at Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, our guest, T.J. Betts, pastored churches in Ohio and Indiana for more than 14 years. So they make a journey of about 900 miles and arrive at Jerusalem. Uh, why is Nehemiah so bothered, you read this in the text, by the sight of the devastation? I mean, I feel like saying, what did you expect? The city's destruction had taken place decades before. I'm confused by his devastation. Yeah, um, there are a couple of things I think of uh, about that. One is um, we took my mother in when my father passed away, and she had several health problems, and and we knew she was when when it got to the end she was going to die. And yet when she did, it was stunning. And it makes no sense to me because we saw it coming and all of that. And yeah. so I think the reality of, of something that really affects us um, really has a deeper effect once it really happens. So I think okay. that's one part of it. Um, I think the other thing is just the fact that it was Jerusalem, the holy city. It was the place that that uh, God had made his manifest presence there with the, the temple before his people. And just to see how God's name and God's people had been brought under reproach, to actually see it in person, I think it just really um, bothered him more than even just hearing about it, but actually seeing the reality of it. Yeah. Well, there's so much ground to cover here. I can see already we're going to need to have you back for another conversation. But I want to get to the, quote, end of the story, which really isn't the end. It's it's just a, it's a pause point in Nehemiah. But it's a grand moment when they finish the reconstruction of the walls. They do it in 52 days. Uh, we're going to dig later into the conversation about all the opposition. But I want to know, how did they do it in 52 days? To me, that just seems uh, physically, logistically almost impossible. Your take. Yeah, again, um, often through the book, Nehemiah gives credit to God. You see this all the time, our God was with us, the hand of God was upon me. And he really, Nehemiah recognizes this was God at work. And so I'm going to take Nehemiah's word for that. I mean, that this was a God thing. Um, Yes, the people put their minds to it and did the work and came together under Nehemiah, 
but God blessed that in a special way. And in the end, you'll see Nehemiah says the people worked, but God's hand was upon us, and, and he's the one that did this. So I, I think that that's a, a huge element of how it happened so quickly. You know, when you look at Nehemiah as a person, as his story unfolds in the pages of the book, you see a guy who's very strong. I mean, he has to be to lead the the people on that 900-mile journey, to insist on the things that he did, to take on the the enemies of Sanballat and Tobiah and so on. All of these things, this was not a doormat. This was a guy who was very strong. And I go, now, how did that work, Uh, being a cupbearer to the king? I mean, he was a strong personality. Yes. Um, you know, again, um, I think our thinking of a servant and a cupbearer, we, we kind of think of that as, as a weak position. Mm-hmm. But the king, the kings always had good looking, strong people around them because that was a picture of strength for them. And so to picture Nehemiah as a pushover would probably, it doesn't even fit with what the Persian kings would have had for like a cupbearer and those who were their closest uh, associates and servants. So yes, he was very strong. And I think really, when we look at the the history and how kings operated, it fits very well with what we see Nehemiah doing when he leaves the king with what Nehemiah had been doing with the king. Well, there's a whole lot more to this story. We've barely begun. That's why we're going to have to have you back. We'll do that soon. Meanwhile, I want to recommend anybody who's interested in the life of Nehemiah to do what I have done and uh, grab a copy of Nehemiah, a pastoral and exegetical commentary by T.J. Betts, published by Lexham Press. A great conversation. Thank you for your time today. Appreciate it. Oh, thank you. It's been, been a real pleasure. And we'll have you back again soon. Up next, it's Charlie Dyer with a look at your questions on the land and the book. You know, it's interesting, if you've got a Bible app on your phone, your iPad, your computer, you see all 66 books right there in a real small amount of space. You give a click and boom, there you are. It just doesn't seem like that huge a book. And yet, it is the living Word of God. It's packed with layers of meaning, and sometimes we get stuck, right? Well, that's what this next segment is all about. Welcome back to The Land and the Book. I'm John Geiger. I love the Word, and I'm so grateful to be sitting across from Dr. Charlie Dyer, who not only loves the Word, but teaches the Word and can help us understand the Word. All right, we'll start with the the life of Job. Bernard says, you read Job, and it sounds like Job is arguing with God. Yet Job is described as a man of patience. In the beginning of the book, he does sound like a man of great faith, but as the book continues, it seems like he has a lot of doubt, and that confuses me. Your thoughts? Yeah, I think the best answer is to see Job as a real-life person. He's just like us. He's a godly man who feared God. He turned away from evil. Uh, Now, he did have his shortcomings and his flaws, just like we do. Uh, It helps to remember two things as we read the book of Job. First, Job had no idea that his problems were the result of a cosmic struggle between God and Satan. We know why he was struggling, but he's never told. And second, Job didn't have any of the Word of God to go to for help and guidance. None of the Bible had yet been written when Job was alive. He probably lived around the time of Abraham based on his age and on the fact that he was functioning as a priest offering sacrifices for his children and his friends. Now, when God confronted Job at the end, God's purpose was to get Job to realize he didn't really understand how the world was put together or how it worked. In essence, God was saying, Job, if you don't understand how it was all designed and runs, 
Don't presume to criticize me. Mm. But God doesn't condemn Job for his honesty or for his openness. Job didn't understand what was happening, and he thought God must have made a mistake. But he never accused God of wickedness, and he never was willing to curse God or turn his back on God. And that's why he was such a righteous man. To put Job in perspective, I think about how many times we gripe and complain when things happen to us. And we have all of God's Word, plus the indwelling Holy Spirit and the finished work of Christ that we can look back on. Now, in that light, I wonder how we would have responded had we gone through everything Job did and then had our three, quote, friends come by and tell us it was all our fault. (laughs) Well, that's a great answer, and I thank you for the question, Bernard. Here's one from Eric. Someone I know recommended that I join a contemplative prayer group which uses centering prayer. I don't know much about this. Do you know anything about centering prayer, and is it a recommended practice based on principles of the Bible? Uh, Yeah, this is a very polarizing issue among evangelical Christians, and I do have my own strong opinions on the issue, and it's based in part on what I've studied and what I've seen in churches. Uh, However, the amount of literature and the differences of opinion on the topic are vast. Now, Here's what I'm going to say. I have serious reservations about centering prayer, contemplative prayer, contemplative spirituality, and a host of other interrelated approaches to the spiritual life. I just don't necessarily agree with some who claim it shows the influence of the New Age movement on Christianity, since this approach to the spiritual life has been around long before the advent of the New Age movement. But I am concerned that it substitutes personal experience for the revealed Word of God. And many of the more modern versions tend to insert a modern form of psychological spirituality in place of solid biblical teaching that leads to spiritual maturity. Now, here are two issues that I would urge you and and anyone listening to consider. Is prayer an emptying of ourself, or is it intended to be actual communication between us and God? Well, the Lord's Prayer in Matthew 6 is the model for prayer given to us by Jesus, and it seems to be quite at odds with what's promoted in contemplative prayer. The second point, is the Word of God one avenue among many for having God speak to us, or is it the primary instrument given by God for us to know Him and His will for our lives? I believe 2 Timothy 3, 16-17 is the yardstick against which any other approach must be measured. Great point. Thank you, Charlie. Miles says, I'm curious about lambing season in Israel, when it is, what it is. I get the impression that it's in the spring— but I have never seen anything definitive in the scriptures and have never heard anyone address this subject as it relates to today. I assume that the season hasn't moved significantly over the two millennia since Jesus' day. What can you tell me? Yeah, and it hasn't changed very much. The normal time for lambing in Israel is December into January, uh, the winter season. Now, I know that in part because of an experience I had years ago leading a group of pastors to Israel. We were there in early January. We were just outside Bethlehem, and as I was sharing details about the birth of Jesus with the pastors, I was really waxing eloquent, but as I was sharing, a Bedouin woman and her small flock of sheep came up the hill just behind us, and she was carrying a lamb that must have been born within the last few days. I looked up from reading the passage I was reading to see that all the pastors were totally ignoring me, and they were overtaking pictures of the shepherdess and this young little lamb that had just been born. So uh, the time for birthing is December, January, that winter season. From Mark, this question, did Jesus and his disciples, or did the disciples of John the Baptist, offer sacrifices in the temple because they were under the law? This appears to be what some teachers teach. And did the disciples in the book of Acts offer sacrifices in the temple as they were under law, Jewish believers? 
Yeah, the New Testament doesn't directly say that Jesus, his disciples, or the disciples of John the Baptist offered sacrifices in the temple, but I believe they did. And uh, here's why I say that. First, we know they celebrated Passover. Part of the preparation for Passover was the sacrifice of the lamb in the temple. And in Luke 22, it says two disciples on Jesus's orders went and prepared the Passover. Second, we know Jesus's parents followed the Old Testament law in regard to sacrifices at the time of his birth. It says uh, when the time of Mary's purification according to the law of Moses had been completed, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord, as it's written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord, and, it says, to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what is said in the law of the Lord. So they were fulfilling Leviticus chapter 12 and the, the sacrifice. And finally, when Paul was arrested in the temple in Acts 21, he was paying for the sacrifices connected with the fulfillment of a Nazarite vow uh, with a group of individuals. The command regarding the fulfilling of a Nazarite vow is found in Numbers chapter 6, and it involved offering multiple animal sacrifices and then shaving the person's head. Now, while Paul was arrested before the vow could be completed, he evidently had no problem going to the temple and participating in this ceremony. Was the gospel the Jewish believers taught different from the gospel of grace in the New Testament, Charlie? Uh, the gospel, which literally means good news, always involved salvation by grace through faith in what God had promised. And salvation is always based ultimately on the death of God's son. Now, over time, God did reveal more information about his promises, but the believers in all ages were saved by placing their trust in what God had revealed. One of the great examples of this, Genesis fifteen six, it says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That is, Abraham believed God's promise, and his faith is what God accepted to make him righteous. And it's interesting that the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3 quotes that passage to show that it's faith alone in what God has revealed which brings salvation. The content was increased over time as God gave greater revelation, but it was always by grace, through faith, in God's promise. It's The Land and the Book with Dr. Charlie Dyer. We're looking at questions from our listeners. Sherry says, what book or books would you suggest for the layperson like myself to uh, explain cultural idioms, the scriptures themselves, and, and if other scriptures are pertinent to a verse? I, I want to dig deep for myself to read scripture, but also to be able to go to others to find content for application. What do you uh, suggest? Yeah, I start with a good study Bible, and there's a number of them out there. I, one that has good study notes, good cross-references. I like the NIV study Bible, but I also have the Ryrie study Bible from Moody, the MacArthur study Bible, the Archaeological study Bible. But start with one good study Bible, and then over time, just keep an eye out for others and uh, add to your collection. But since Bibles can be expensive, uh, let me follow that up with a free resource. There are several major Bible encyclopedias that are available. They're all helpful, but they can be expensive. But a good one to search for online is search for the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia. It's a five-volume set. It was originally published back in 1939. Some of the materials dated, but it's still incredibly helpful. And it's totally free. Just bookmark the site on your computer or smartphone or tablet and use it as a handy reference. I think you can also get some cultural details in other books. Uh, uh, some good sources are The Handbook of Life in Bible Times by J.A. Thompson. Uh, it has a section on towns and homes and food and industry and warfare and a host of other topics. Uh, Moody Publishers has The New Manners and Customs of Bible Times. Uh, they also have The New Unger's Bible Handbook. Those are great for providing background information. Well, I could go on, but 
there's some pretty good resources there to get you started. And over time, just keep building up your library of Bible resources. They'll be a great source of helpful information. And again, the name of that free one online, the International Bible Stud? International Standard Bible Encyclopedia, as we always refer to it as ISBE. Okay, it's a great one. I'm going to check that one out myself. Thanks, Charlie. And thanks for your questions today. Hey, don't go away. We're headed to Israel, a passage, a place. You'll never forget the combining of them both in Charlie's devotional next. This is The Land and the Book from Moody Radio. Could be it's your very first time listening. Maybe you joined us midstream. Well, let me introduce myself. I'm John Geiger, and you've joined us for segment four of the program, our final segment, which features a devotional from our host, Charlie Dyer. I love the way he connects places and events in Scripture with the text itself, but you'll discover that for yourself in just a moment. Right now, though, we're going to treat you to a Holy Land experience thoughts from someone who's traveled to the Holy Land and now shares these thoughts with you and me. Hi, I'm Paul Lang. I uh, actually was invited to come with my wife uh, by friends of ours who have been before with Moody, and we turned them down twice, but they prevailed on us, and we did agree to go, and it is a life-changing experience. I think the reality of what God is doing in such a small place again and again and again all throughout history just to save us is just the most remarkable thing. And then to see that history unfold in front of us and to hear about it from uh, experts, uh, it is just a remarkable thing. It will change me forever. My name is Joyce Papich, and uh, my experience with with the Bible so far has been getting to know the Lord and Him teaching me on the level that I was ready for. And now I can understand things on such a greater level and have so much more communication with Him. And reading through the Bible, knowing where He's been, knowing where all these events have happened, I can experience them at a deeper level and get even more out of all the messages that he has for me. I'm just so excited to have a whole new world open up to me. My name is Wayne Studeman and just finishing my second trip to Israel. And I'm absolutely struck by the reality of the presence of God in this small land. In the second visit, uh, there's just it's just become so clear that in this small land, uh, God came here first, and He's still very present, and um, we know He's with us everywhere. But if you want to find God in a footprint, uh, come to Israel. Interesting, isn't it, to hear what other people observe, think about, ponder, and remember as they travel through the Holy Land. Grateful for that Holy Land experience. So, I don't know if you have ever had the pleasure of smelling a sheepskin. Let me tell you, having done so, you will not forget it. There's something about a sheepskin. It is pungent. The odor hangs in the air. It lasts. And I just cannot imagine hanging out with a whole flock of sheep, as David once did. But that's getting ahead of the story, which has everything to do with first impressions. I remember last week we took a look at the life of King Saul and the first impressions we had about him. First impressions, though, this week about somebody else. Charlie? Yeah, last week we did talk about first impressions and their importance in revealing a person's overall character. And today our destination is Bethlehem for another impression of someone destined to become king. But watch where you step and bring along your pooper scooper 
because the ground is covered in sheep dung. As 1 Samuel 16 opens, God chastens Samuel the prophet and then sends him on a new assignment. How long will you grieve over Saul since I've rejected him from being king over Israel? Fill your horn with oil and go, I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have selected a king for myself among his sons. Samuel made his way to Bethlehem, called the city to a time of sacrifice, and then invited Jesse and his sons to the event. The elderly Samuel was the spiritual giant of his day, and to be personally invited to attend this religious event was quite an honor. I imagine things got pretty hectic in Jesse's house as he and his seven oldest sons prepared for this time of sacrifice with Samuel. When Jesse arrived at the event with his sons, the Bible says Samuel looked at Jesse's oldest son, Eliab, and thought, Surely the Lord's anointed is before him. Eliab must have been a rather dashing firstborn son. Not as tall as King Saul, mind you, but still rather tall and definitely handsome. So imagine Samuel's surprise when God spoke to him at that very moment and said, Do not look at his appearance or at the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For God sees not as man sees. For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Samuel, your first impressions are wrong. He might look good on the outside, but he doesn't measure up on the inside, and that's where it matters most. I suspect Jesse was just a little crestfallen when Samuel said, He's nice, but... Let me see your next son. Seven times Jesse brought forth one of his sons to formally introduce him to Samuel. Each time Samuel looked at the young man with a smile and a hopeful gleam in his eye, only to have his smile turn into a frown and his head shake from side to side as if he was spotting some flaw or blemish that wasn't obvious to anyone else. Finally, Jesse stood alone before Samuel. There were no more sons at his side to present. And a perplexed Samuel asked him, Are these all the children? God had sent him to Bethlehem to anoint one of Jesse's sons, but now God had apparently rejected them all. I'm sure there was a sense of frustration and perhaps desperation in Samuel's question. Jesse finally stammered out an answer. Well, there remains the youngest, and behold, he's tending the sheep. Jesse had omitted the youngest. Actually, the Hebrew word here, katan, actually means smallest. It could imply David was physically the smallest, most likely because he was the youngest of the sons. But the word can also have the idea of unimportant or insignificant. It could be that David didn't even enter Jesse's mind when he was told to bring his sons to an important gathering. It could have taken hours to search for David in the wilderness and summon him back to town. And David wasn't important enough, at least in his earthly father's eyes, to inconvenience someone as important as Samuel by making him wait. I find the comparisons between the introductions of Saul and David to be fascinating. Saul was the tallest in Israel. David was the smallest in his family. Saul was searching unsuccessfully for stray donkeys. David was watching over the flock under his care. When David finally arrived, he's described as ruddy, with beautiful eyes and a handsome appearance. The word ruddy is the Hebrew word for red. It's possible David had a reddish tint to his hair, and that's why he's sometimes pictured as a redhead. The word could also point to a bronzed complexion, tanned from his time out in the sun. The phrase beautiful eyes points to David's eyes as one of his most striking features, setting him off in a pleasant way, and the word handsome is the Hebrew word for good, tov. David had a good appearance. But are our first impressions about David only focused on how he looked? The answer is no, for two reasons. 
First, God, who looked on the heart, told Samuel that David was the one to be anointed. And second, the phrase spoken by Jesse about David, he's tending the sheep, was included to give us insight into David's character. David had the heart of a shepherd. It showed up in his protection of the flock under his care. As he later said to King Saul, Your servant was tending his father's sheep. When a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. It's his shepherd's heart that ultimately set David apart. David's time alone in the wilderness, watching over defenseless sheep, helped him develop courage and skill and patience and trust in God, character traits that ultimately led him to successfully shepherd the people of Israel. It's no accident that Psalm 78 summarizes his success as king by reminding Israel of the skills David first learned as a shepherd. David shepherded them according to the integrity of his heart and guided them with his skillful hands. So what lessons can we take away from our first impressions of young David? I see two. First, it doesn't matter what others think of you. It's what God thinks that's most important. He's the one who looks beyond outward appearances and gazes into the heart. Second, no job is trivial if God has called you to it. David's family saw David as the insignificant son out in the wilderness with a bunch of sheep. God saw David doing advanced studies in leadership development. The classroom might have had the smell of sheep dung, but the lessons David learned out with the sheep were the ones that qualified him to lead the nation. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, You think of David as king, David as conqueror, David fighting Goliath, but it really was in hanging out with the sheep that he earned his first qualifications to lead a nation. Powerful stuff. And you can hear it all again when you visit our website, thelandandthebook.org, thelandandthebook.org. Maybe you've got a question as you're working through your own personal Bible study your devotional time, you've come across something and and you're just not quite sure what the answer is. You've dug around and you don't know where to take that question. Well, you take it to us at The Land and the Book and uh, Charlie Dyer will look over your question, send you back a personal email response and very possibly will air your question on a future edition of The Land and the Book. Here's how you send us your question. It's thelandandthebook at moody.edu. The Land and the Book at moody.edu. Did you know we have a podcast that you can share with friends, relatives, neighbors, folks at church? It's easy to do it if you'll uh, point them to our website, thelandandthebook.org. They can download the podcast and listen whenever they like, thelandandthebook.org. I'm John Gager, thanking you for connecting with us today. Hope to see you next time for another edition of The Land and the Book, a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of Moody Bible Institute.